Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 to 35. You can also follow along on page 7 of your bulletin. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave the feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also, and in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my, my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons, so he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is the word of God. If you're new or visiting the season, we've been looking at passages in the Old Testament <clears throat> that often turn people away from Jesus, that often turn people away from the church, because they just sound awful. I mean, what is a passage like this? What is it about? What does it mean? And Genesis chapter 29 is about the life of Jacob. Jacob is one of the most important figures in the Old Testament. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, whom we heard two weeks ago, and he's the son of Isaac. And remember, God promised a son. God promised that a descendant from Abraham, every generation, a descendant of Abraham, will in some sense be the redeemer for his generation, a son of promise. He would be blessed. But Jacob stole the blessing from his brother. And so his life just completely blows up. I mean, Jacob's wondering, does it still count? Am I really blessed? He's estranged from his family. He's betrayed his brother. His brother now has vowed to kill him. And so Jacob, he leaves home, and he ends up working for his uncle Laban. And that's where we are here in this passage. There are three points we're going to look at. Guys, this is going to be a little bit of a journey, so you're going to have to walk with me today. All right? We're going to walk through the narrative. Uh, and then we're going to see some really important lessons about our sin and then about God's grace. 
We're going to walk through the narrative. We're going to see some important lessons about our sin and then lessons about God's grace. First, let's walk through the narrative again. I'm going to kind of retell the narrative. Genesis chapter 29 opens up with Jacob working for his uncle Laban. And he's been there about a month. And his uncle must have realized after watching uh, Jacob work, wow, my nephew, he's a good worker. In fact, he could be the key to me expanding my enterprise, my business. So he wants to retain Jacob, and he asks him in verse 15, what can I do to retain you? What can I do to keep you? And Jacob responds, I want your daughter, Rachel. Now, you have to think about this. Jacob has been away from his family for a month. He's been sleeping. He's been like homeless for a month. And he's been away from his family. And your family in those days was your life. So he's incredibly lonely. How does Jacob deal with this brokenness and this isolation and this loneliness? Because a lot of us, we need to hear this, a lot of us have been broken and lonely and isolated. He says, I know what I need. I need a relationship in my life. And so in verse 18, Jacob, he's got no assets. He's penniless. He's got no money. And so he needs to translate a bride price. It's very common in ancient times for a man to offer the price for a bride. And this is very common in Jacob's culture. He translates the bride price into labor. And so he says, I will work seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, here's the problem. Laban has two daughters. And in the old days, in the ancient times, you always married off the elder one first. And so, verse 17, Leah is this elder one, but she's got, what the Bible says, she's got weak eyes, but Rachel is lovely in form. Rachel's beautiful. The text doesn't say Leah's got weak eyes, but Rachel has perfect vision, and therefore Jacob fell in love with this one. She sees really well. That's not what happened here. It says that Rachel is beautiful, and that's the point. There's something about Leah's eyes that make her undesirable. There's something about Leah's eyes that made her weak. But Rachel, Rachel is sexually desirable. And Laban says, yes, he develops this plan where he can expand his enterprise and marry off both of his daughters. Jacob works seven years. The Bible says it felt like only a few days. Then he says, give me my wife. But he was deceived. He was deceived. On their wedding night, it was a feast. That feast, that phrase in Hebrew, that word is translated into like, it's a drinking feast, a drinking party. Everyone is drinking. Clearly, people are getting drunk, and it's super late. They had no electricity in those ancient times, so when the lights go out, it is pitch dark. And so Jacob is in the dark, pitch black, very, very dark, and his wife, remember, in your, on your wedding day, your wife is veiled pretty much the entire time. So he does not see behind this veil. And so now Jacob is in bed expecting Rachel, but Leah takes her place, and he sleeps with Leah. And verse 25 says, when morning came, there was Leah. Now, I'm going to take a pause here. Why would Leah, why would she be willing to go through This kind of a plan. Why would Leah be willing to lie in a sense, to deceive Jacob in a sense? There's several reasons. One, these are the ancient times. It was a very patriarchal society, which meant that your father, his word was binding. His word was law in a sense. And so even if your father is wrong, you obeyed. Secondly, and I'm surmising this, that Laban was likely telling his daughter, don't worry. 
Don't worry, I know he's not in love with you right now. You don't fall in love, you grow to love each other over time. And third, probably the most compelling, likely, Leah's desperate. Leah knows the issue with her. And, and she's desperate to get married. She's lonely. She's been overlooked all her life. And, I mean, she's so lonely. When you're lonely, what resource do you have? What's the solution? Ah, I need to find that one person. Because if, if love does grow, if, we can, if I have a shot at growing love, I know I could be a good wife. If, I could just, if he could just grow to love me, that will validate my life. Did the plan work? I mean, for Laban, it worked beautifully. So Jacob, now recognizing that he's married to Leah, confronts Laban and ends up committing another seven years, long, hard years, and, and eventually marries Rachel too. Now, now Leah is exploited. She's been disregarded by her father. She's been disregarded by her husband. Her heart is just absolutely broken, Ah, but she... She can bear children. And so in verse 32, she has Reuben. Reuben means I'm seen. Verse 33, she bears uh, Simeon. Simeon means I'm heard. Verse 34, she gives birth to Levi. Levi means I'm attached. Verse 35, she has a fourth child, Judah. This time, I'm going to praise the Lord. There's a lot to unpack here. We're going to get several lessons on sin, several lessons on grace. I'm going to give you six lessons. Like I said, it's going to be a little bit of a journey. Six lessons about sin. One, sin is a power. Sin is a power. Look at, if you look at Jacob in verse 18, he's just consumed by Rachel, completely taken by Rachel. Verse 18, he's willing to work seven years. That means I will do anything. All he sees is Rachel. Every day he's working. It's just one day closer to getting Rachel in a sense, Right? Historical research has shown that the normal amount of, of, of bride price that a man is willing to pay uh, to the family of the bride for marriage is less than 50 shekels. Now, kind of give you perspective, a shepherd, which is what Jacob was, he made around 10 shekels a year, which means that the normal asking price in getting married to a woman, right, is about five years worth of labor. Jacob offers seven. Why? The practical reason is, Jacob has to sweeten the offer because he had nothing. He had no home, family, life terrible, broken. All the things that, that a bride's family would look for in a man, Jacob didn't have it. He was penniless, he was homeless, he was friendless. So he makes an offer that Laban couldn't refuse. Why? He needs this. I need this in my life. Now, so far in this passage, what sin has Jacob committed? In this passage, do you see anything of overt? Has he done anything wrong? No. Sin is more than an act. It's a captivating power. It controls you. It shapes you. It moves you. It corrodes you. And eventually, it ruins you. Jacob just absolutely needs this relationship in his life. It's got a power over him, so it twists and distorts what he sees, how he responds. And anything that's apart from God that has a power over you, 
good things even, good things especially, that is sin. Anything that has power over you, apart from God. You're not just going to outgrow it. Well, as I get older, I'll just outgrow it. The Bible says, actually, it gets worse. You can't just stop it. It's going to trap you, ensnare you. It's going to own you. It's going to destroy you. Sin makes you desperate. What are you quietly desperate about in your life? Single folks, a lot of you, you're battling loneliness, and you think the solution is, you know, i got to find somebody. And so for some of you, you know, one hand you say, well, you come to Metro, maybe it's been a while since you've entered into a church, maybe you've grown up in a church all your life, you come into the church and you say, you know, I want to really mature. Anytime you make a switch in a church, generally people do that, they say, I want to mature in faith. But then on the other hand, there's that desire to be loved, that desire for a relationship. It's the single biggest factor keeping people from really growing in their faith in a particular stage, especially your particular stage in life. And we're too afraid to admit it. And so what happens is you end up keeping up pretenses to one part of your community. You say, oh, I'm good. I just want to grow in faith. And you, you, you go through the motions. But on the other hand, there's this thing that's growing, this desperation that's quietly growing and building in you, and it's overtaking you. You're falling into the trap, you see. And, and all the while, it's that relationship, that desire for a relationship, it's ruining you. Sin is a power. Secondly, sin is compulsion. Jacob, he worked seven years. Verse 20, it says, but it seemed like only a few days. A few days because of his love for Rachel. And when those seven years are up, Jacob says in verse 21, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. Look at the language there. I mean, the way you read it, you might have overlooked it, but that language is pretty much how he's saying it. Look at the boldness, almost the crassness. He's completely out of the standard of cultural propriety. Jacob essentially is rabid. Seven years have gone by. He has waited. He has counted down the days. It's gone by so fast, and now he's just like frothing at the mouth. Basically, what he's saying is, it's done. I want Rachel. Give her to me. I want to have sex right now. That's what he's saying. It's crazy. Jacob, is, he's just blind with compulsion for Rachel. It's all she wants. You know what that means? It means that's seven years of nobody confronting Jacob about this power that's growing in him. It's seven years of him disregarding the warning signs. It's seven years of him walking around and acting one way, but in the heart, there's something just completely driving him. Seven years he's gone unaddressed. You have anything like that in your life? Thirdly, sin is idolatry. Because of the power of sin, because of the compulsion of sin, he just needs, needs Rachel. Why, why seven years? Seven is the perfect number. Seven is the word for completion. In other words, when Jacob looks at Rachel, he's saying, she completes me. Jacob's thinking this, my life is worth nothing unless I have this woman. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to have this woman. My life is a mess. I've lost my father. I've lost my mother. I've lost my brother. I've lost my home. I've lost my wealth. I, I'm not even sure who I am anymore, really. I mean, do I even have the blessing? I've got nothing in my life. But Rachel, Rachel, I'm just, she's just smitten by Rachel. She is beautiful. He's thinking, if Rachel marries a guy like me, 
then it doesn't matter. All this suffering, all the loss, all the, I just lost my family, all these things, it's, it's, it's worth it. If I can have a woman like Rachel, if Rachel marries a guy like me, then I must be worthy. Then I have worth. It will be a perfect life. I've lied my way to get everything in my life. Finally, there's something pure that I can earn. He's willing to work that seven years. It's perfect. I've earned her. For once, I've done it honestly. Because she is the cure for my loneliness. She is the cure for my desperation. In other words, another way of saying that is, Rachel's my savior. She saves me. And whenever you have something apart from God that you look to to fix you, that's an idol. Fourthly, sin makes you deaf. It makes you blind. It makes you mute. It makes you powerless. Laban, Laban sees Jacob's desperation. I mean, here's a guy. I mean, he's got him. Here's a guy who's willing to do anything for Rachel, for my daughter. And so when Jacob makes this offer, Sidney Gridanus, he's a, he's a great commentator in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis. He's won an incredible, worked, uh, written an incredible book about, uh, about Genesis. And, and he says that when Jacob makes an offer, you've got to notice, Laban doesn't really respond. He doesn't say, okay. There's no verbal agreement. There's no signing on the dotted line. Jacob says seven years, and Laban, he never says, yes, deal. Let's agree on it. Jacob's just assuming why. He's distracted. He's so distracted. He doesn't hear what Laban is saying. So when the seven years are up, finally, now we're alone, and it's dark. He's got blind spots. He can't see. And so they sleep together. But when Jacob wakes up the next morning, verse 25, it's Leah. Notice in verse 25, Jacob says, what is this you've done? You betrayed me. I mean, I served you for Rachel. Why did you deceive me? What's Laban's response? Get this. He says, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter away in marriage before the older daughter. I'm going to say it another way for you. I'm going to kind of translate this. Laban's saying, Jacob, I'm not sure what goes on in your family. But in our family, in our world, we don't bless the younger one before the older one. It's like a gut punch to Jacob. Sin makes you deaf. It distracts you. You don't hear. Maybe you refuse to hear. Sin makes you blind. And so you're constantly alone and acting alone and in the dark. And you think you got what you wanted. You're overcome by its power. How does Jacob respond? Does he fight Laban? Does he bring up a lawsuit against Laban? He could have, I mean, he didn't intend to marry Leah. I suppose he could have tried to divorce himself from Leah. But he doesn't do anything. He can't do anything. He's mute. He could have fought. He could have brought a charge against Laban. But he doesn't. You know why? Because on one hand, he still wants Rachel. So sin has this way of cascading you to a lower place, even though it promises a higher place. And what happens is he still wants Rachel. He's powerless as a result. On the other hand, because he realized Jacob got played in the exact same way that he usually has been playing other people in his life. That word deceived here. You deceived me. It's the same word 
that his own father used when he got tricked. You see? When he stole the, when Jacob stole the blessing. Robert Alter, he's a professor at Berkeley. Uh, and uh, he's a liberal professor, but he's an incredible um, expert. He's one of the few experts in the ancient Hebrew to the degree that he is. He quotes this old story from the Hebrew Midrash. Now, the Midrash is like a commentary on a book of the Bible. And so he, he quotes this old story from the Hebrew Midrash in his own commentary in Genesis. And he says this, imagine, imagine Jacob asking Laban, why did you deceive you daughter, he's talking to Leah. Why did you uh, deceive your, the, you daughter of a deceiver? Didn't I call out Rachel and you answered me? And in the, this commentary, uh, she responds saying, well, isn't this how your father cried out Esau, but then you answered? How does Jacob respond to that? Sin makes you deaf. It makes you blind. It makes you mute. It makes you powerless because you're under its control. Fifth, sin is labor. Jacob's willing to do anything for Rachel. Anything for that which he believes is going to give him worth. It's interesting. Those seven years seem like only a few days. The actual Hebrew word is for the few days is a little while. It just seemed like a little while. It's the same phrase that Jacob's mother, once Jacob had stolen the blessing from Esau, Jacob's mother knows what's going to happen. I mean, Esau is going to be out to kill you. And so what he tells Jacob is, what she tells Jacob is, I want you to go to your uncle Laban and just stay there for a few days. Just stay there for a little while. You know how long he ended up being out there away from home? He never goes back home. He's gone. He's gone for good. He's gone forever. Some of you, I mean, you've been in unhealthy dating relationships. And when you enter into this relationship, and, you, and you're in a, we're in these relationships oftentimes much longer than we, we should be, really. Because we tell ourselves going in, well, I can always get out. We're not married. I can always get out. And then what happens? The cascade and the descent begins. The operating in the darkness begins. The blindness, deafness, muteness powerlessness begins and what happens you lose lots of time you're trapped and you feel you can't leave and what happens is during the course of that time you're just constantly working throughout this thing you're just gonna you end up working you know why because you're trying to work off your desperation that desperation never goes away you thought it was going to end your desperation in actuality it actually gets worse you thought it was going to increase your potential and increase your options and increase your freedom and joy and peace when in actuality, it's actually decreased your potential, decreased your options, decreased your freedom and joy and your peace. Lastly, sin is brokenness. Verse 25. Now, I want you to not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you're broken, it's because you're in sin. Sometimes we do things and it leads us into brokenness. Not all broken people are in sin. We all have sin. It doesn't mean we're in sin. What I mean is, in verse 25, when morning came, it was Leah. Derek Hidner, he's a great, great commentator in Genesis. He says this. Those words are the very embodiment of anticlimax, and this moment is a miniature of man's disillusion experienced from the Garden of Eden, from Eden onwards. 
Another way to put it, I'm going to tell you, Tim Keller, he's my favorite preacher. He preached probably the most amazing sermon I've ever heard on this passage, but he calls this, I'm going to just basically wrap it up and kind of, um, uh, that phrase from Derek Kidner, basically he calls it cosmic disappointment. Love that phrase. Basically what he's saying is this. No matter where you place your hopes, if it's apart from God, if you place your hopes in your spouse or in your career or in a sexual relationship or in your reputation or in your wealth, in your family, in your children, in the morning, there will always be Leah. Cosmic disappointment always begins with a promise. Always begins a promise to increase, to build you. You're going to find worth this way. This is how you, you, this is going to be just perfect. What could possibly go wrong? All sin begins with a promise to cure you. And so the Bible says that we're constantly elevating things in our lives to a cosmic level. Whatever it is, you think you're getting Rachel, you always end up with Leah. If you're apart from God, you always end up with Leah. Look at Jacob, he's suffering. Look at Leah. She's thinking, if I can find that one man who can love me, then I know I'm gonna be somebody. And, and it's going to be worth all the pain and all the suffering because that's what's going to fix me. But look at the outcome. Verses 28 to 30, look at the outcome. Leah is just devastated because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And so you see that desperation in the names of her sons. Each son is given a Hebrew name that gives you a picture of Leah's desperation. Verses 31 to 32, Reuben, now I am seen. In other words, I'm no longer going to be invisible. Now my husband will see me and love me. Now I'm going to be a somebody. Verse 33, Simeon, now I'll no longer be ignored. I'm going to be heard. Verse 34, Levi, my husband will now join me. He's always joining with Leah, I mean with Rachel. Now he's going to join me. He's going to be attached to me. These are the lies. These are the traps. Once they own you, they will enslave you and ruin you. How do you find freedom from that? I'm going to give you six lessons, six lessons about grace. First, God works through broken situations. What do you see in the entire passage? Deceit conspiracy, adultery, polygamy, misogyny. It's awful. I mean, how could something like this be in the Bible? One, because it happened. It's real. The Bible doesn't pull punches and give you a sanitized version of what's going on. It's not a rated G book uh, that always ends up with like sitcoms, happy family story. No one is happy in this passage. Everyone is miserable in this passage, and that's the point. God isn't condoning it. What he's doing is he's showing you what life looks like when you, pray, when you replace him with other things. Look at the misery. I mean, just look at the, it's awful. Look at the brokenness. It's awful. And yet God is still not absent. He's working in it. He's working through it. That's what he's doing. He's still present. He's still active. He's working in the darkness. Through all of these bad decisions, through all of the scheming, all these broken situations, what does that mean? You've got to hear the word of God. Trust it. There are people in this room right now when you look at your own life situation, you say, I mean, what good can come from my current situation? No good can come from this. Look, this passage, if anything, is gonna show you that God's grace can work best 
in the most broken situations. Look at the cross of Christ. People were watching Jesus being crucified and wondering, I mean, with all that he promised about who he is, how could any good come from this person dying on the cross? And yet, through that great darkness and brokenness comes salvation, the salvation of God's people. Through the greatest, most broken situation, through the greatest injustice, and yet did God stop what was going on on the cross? No, he worked through it to bring about salvation. God is active in Jacob's life. God is active in in Leah's life. And he's active in their lives through all their scheming and all their brokenness and all their arrogance and pride, all their deceit. In their situation, he can definitely be active in yours. Don't you think? Secondly, God works through broken cultures. It's easy for us to say, I mean, well, look how primitive that culture is. We're beyond this, right? We're more educated, right? We're more liberated, right? I mean, we don't care about looks anymore, right? We don't judge people on how they look anymore, do we? We don't care about sex appeal anymore, do we? We don't, we don't screw each other over money anymore, do we? We don't lie anymore, do we? We don't manipulate people. We don't manipulate people for love anymore, right? The Bible is so relevant because the heart hasn't changed. Because human nature, our sin nature hasn't changed. Because the problems of the world, the insecurities of the world, the brokenness of the world hasn't changed. If you look at Leah, in her culture, women had no power. They had no voice. They had no strength. And because on top of that, she has, of her looks, she's even lower than that. She's the unwanted person. But something happened between that third and fourth son. Verse 35, that fourth son is named Judah. Literally, it means now I praise the Lord. The first three sons represents Leah's desperation, her desire to be loved. But by the time you get to the fourth son, Leah's praising, Leah's worshiping. Somehow Leah, who was this weak person all her life, has become strong. Somehow Leah, who was a slave to her culture, A slave to her family, a slave to her society, becomes free. In a way, Leah becomes the prototypical model of biblical femininity because she's saying, I am not going to give in to societal pressure anymore. I'm not going to give in to my cultural pressures anymore. Rather, I'm going to praise the Lord. She sees the Lord in this somehow. Thirdly, God works in broken people. Why is there polygamy and misogyny and exploitation? It's because if you think the Bible, I mean, why is it even in the Bible? If you think the Bible is, if you think the church for that matter is about role models, it's not. The Bible is not about good people who get God and become greater. Where in this passage is Jacob about God? Where in this passage is is Laban about God? The entire time, Jacob resists God, hides from God, runs from God, doesn't deserve God, doesn't seek God, isn't thankful for God, isn't acknowledging God, and yet he's chosen by God. Scripture is filled with stories about sinful, idolatrous, broken people, but God never casts them out. He confronts them. He shapes them. He transforms them. If you're feeling confronted, are you feeling confronted 
right now? Are you coming face to face with your narcissism, or selfishness, pride? Do you feel confronted by your running from God? You're hiding from God? You're faking it with God? You look at Jacob. Through that cosmic disappointment, God is humbling him. These are these major disappointments in life. You know, we suffer incredible disappointments in life. You know what that is? It's like an incubator. You could see that as God waging war on you. That'll ruin your soul. But if you trust the Bible, if you trust what God is saying in the Bible, and he says, but my promise is for you, that I am with you, that I will not reject you, that I have not forsaken you, then these major disappointments in life are like an incubator where God can teach you and counsel you and shape you, give you a real foundation on which godly character and trust and humility are for. You know, we oftentimes pray for certain things. We go to God for certain things. That's not what God's going for. Do you think that of all the billions of people who live on earth, he's wondering whether or not you could get this one little thing that you want? That's not what he's going for. He's going for your greatest joy. And he knows, and he's, he's shared over and over that the only way that you could get to and experience the greatest joy is if you start coming to God for God. You start coming to God for more of him. And so he wants to shape you into the likeness of his son, his character, his humility. That's how it's forged. Don't avoid the confrontation. Don't avoid or disregard what, what's going on in this life. Don't avoid the suffering or try to avert suffering just as, 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 as because it's just awful and it feels bad. If you're going through it, if you're in it, if you're going through the ringer, surrender. Stop. Pause. God is active in your life. If you're in the church, if you're one of God's children, he is active in your life. He is present in your life. He is working in you as much as we often, we want, we want God to work through us. In order for, as he's working through you, he needs to work in you. Fourth, God works through broken people. Why doesn't Jacob fight Laban? It's because he saw himself. God used Leah to humble Jacob. Why doesn't he just walk away from Leah? It's because he saw himself. We all want God to use Rachel's in our lives. We want trophies and beauties and gifts. We go to God for those things, oftentimes. But God often uses Laban's and Leah's in our lives. Each of us have Laban's in our lives that lead us, even as much as you resist, to see your pride and your lies and your selfishness. Your friends already know. They're just being patient and gracious until you find out yourself. The question is, do you see it? Are you in a place where you need to address it? You're being confronted and you need to address it. You can't run from it. Are you being called to answer to it or are you just going to keep resisting it? Over the years, you know, people have said to me, Pastor, man, I hate, I hate the church. 
It's full of hypocrites, liars. People are so fake. I'm never going back to the church. Listen, the church is a hospital for sinners. You know what that means? It's going to be filled with liars and hypocrites, cheaters. A lot of times they don't even think they are. They're pointing to the other guy. And they're right because we are those people, and yet we are that ourselves as well. You see that? The church is a hospital for liars and desperate people and broken people. It's a prerequisite. The prerequisite of going to a hospital, you have to be sick, right? That's why we come, including me. Fifth, God is attracted to Leah's. What heals Leah? I mean, how does she make that jump between the third and the fourth son? Verse 35, Judah means now I will praise the Lord. In ancient times, the, the word God, when, you, when you're praying to God, when you're referring to God, uh, God is referenced as Adonai, Elohim. Those are generic words that people use to refer to God, but the word Judah is derived from a very, very special word that comes as a derivative of the word Yahweh. And the thing is, that word, it's Lord, which is oftentimes capitalized in your Bibles. It's only used by God's own people whom he's chosen, whom whom he's chosen to love. People who have a personal relationship with God refer to him as that. You know what that means? It must have clicked for Leah. You got to listen to this. God chose me to bear children. She must have remembered God's promise that he blessed Jacob, and Jacob does not deserve to be blessed. He's an awful person. He's a lesser person, and yet it must have clicked for her that he's lower, he's awful, he's the deceiver, it's his name, and yet he's blessed. And if God could choose Jacob and bless Jacob, who's a liar and a deceiver, and I, through that, have children, then God must have chosen me. One of my children must be the one, one of our descendants. So she, here she is. She's in her aloneness and her ugliness, that incubator for her to see that God's redemptive plan, that greater plan that he's working out, doesn't come despite the fact that she's unattractive, but it, beca- it comes because she's unattractive. Jacob doesn't see me. Jacob doesn't hear me. Jacob isn't even with me. He's not attached to me. But the Lord sees me. The Lord hears me. The Lord is attached to me. The Lord is attracted to me. The Savior of the world will come through me. There is the worth that she's been looking for all her life. Unloved here, but loved by God. And part etched into that immortal plan. And so through Judah, Leah becomes a foremother of Jesus Christ. Judah's the seed. Rachel later has children too. But Judah, the line of Judah is the line of kings. And so King David is born through the line of Judah. David also is ignored. He's neglected. He's the unwanted child. He was the eighth child. Seven children, perfect. He didn't want the eighth one. He wasn't even brought into the picture when Samuel was ready to anoint the next king. David wasn't even brought into the house. He was out there with the sheep, they said. And so David is ignored. David is neglected. Eventually, Jesus is born through the line of Judah. What does that mean? 
I mean, if you're broken, ugly, sometimes we feel ugly. You know those days? You just feel not good about yourself. Unwanted. In the midst of that desperation, can you come to Christ? Can you come to Jesus? Because Jesus' forefathers, like David, were unwanted. Cast out. Jesus also was unwanted and cast out. You want to know how? But it shows you that Jesus is attracted to you as well. Lastly, God works then through our brokenness. God chose to use the weak, the unattractive, the unwanted to bring about salvation to the world. Leah's story is a precursor, the ultimate story. The ultimate story of salvation. Centuries later, Jesus is born from Judah. Isaiah chapter 53, our call to worship says that he had no beauty or majesty that would attract us. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Here's Jesus Christ. He had the ultimate pedigree. He was the king of the universe. He is God's only son. And yet he sacrificed his pedigree, relinquished his status, surrendered his beauty, gave up his sonship. You know what that means? What does that mean? Jesus Christ is the most beautiful person that ever walked the earth, the most perfect person that ever walked the earth. He is the ultimate Rachel. All other beauties point to the beauty of Christ, and Christ far exceeds by far. And yet he was ignored and overlooked, just like Leah, just like David. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I'm overlooked by he who is the center of my life, the Father, God himself. Now I'm cosmically not seen, cosmically ignored, cosmically God is detached from me, truly overlooked, truly forsaken, truly cast out. In other words, Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate brokenness on the cross, the ultimate emptiness on the cross, the ultimate loneliness and isolation and desperation and ugliness of sin. And when God had let him go, when God had forsaken him, he experienced the ultimate cosmic disappointment, and he did it all for us, his people. There is the cure for our souls. Because the issue is not your body. The issue is your body of sin. The issue is not your ugliness out here. The issue is your ugliness in here. All of us, we're all spiritual layers. But Jesus Christ is the true Rachel. The ultimate Rachel became the ultimate Leah for you so that we, the true layers of the world, now you know, now you have that one man, Jesus Christ, who absolutely knows you, and yet, I mean, he knows everything, and yet he has chosen to love you, and he will never fail. So we could become Rachel's in his sight. You are seen. That's how you know. You are seen because Jesus was outcast. He was, he was ignored. You are heard because Jesus was forsaken. God is attached to you. God is attracted to you. In Christ, you have the one man who will love you with an everlasting love. And that should be worth all your suffering. 
that should be worth any pain. There is your worth. There is the love that we've been looking for all our lives. There's the promise. I mean, the gospel is the ultimate cosmic makeover. Plunge yourself. Hide yourself in the beauty of Christ. Plunge yourself in the beauty of his amazing work for us on the cross, and then you will find that true love that you've been looking for all your life. Look at Jesus giving up himself, giving himself into the power of sin. What cure is there for the idolatry of our sin? What will break the power of our sin? See Jesus Christ on the cross for you. And you got to place your story into the story of Leah, which is hidden in the story of Christ. Beauty, who has become ugly, so that we who are ugly in sin can become beauty. That's what he's doing, working in your suffering and pain, working in your aloneness and isolation, working in your grief and your, and your brokenness, working in your deceit and your cover-ups and all the things that you were doing to try to get the lower man when he is the ultimate beauty, the ultimate man that we've been looking for all of our lives. Place your story into that story. You are broken. You are lying. You are undesirable, and yet God sees you. Christ sees you. See Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, see him. Sin makes you labor, so he's working and groaning and laboring on the cross for you. And yet Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says he did it for the joy. You know what that's saying? With all that suffering, he's working for you as the love of his life and it seemed like just a little while for him. Big lessons on sin. Big lessons on grace. Maybe it means for some of you, you need to let it go. Maybe for other people, it means, man, we need to just take our loves and reorder them so that Christ and his gospel and his redemptive plan working through your life, maybe that's more important. And that will order all your other loves. But for all of us, how are you going to see and identify this, this brokenness in your life? You need community to help you validate, to help you, to encourage you in the battle. Because sin is that powerful. You can't see it on your own. Not the ones that are killing you. Community to help you pray through this brokenness. That you may find your relief in Christ, the ultimate Rachel, who has become ugly for you so that you could be redeemed and renewed into new life in him. Will you trust that? Trust that. See what it does in your work. See what it does in your relationships. See what it does in your families. To be utterly free from sin. Let's pray.